morning. Happy Father's Day. By the way, as I grew up, we always sang that song at the end of the service, so I expected maybe some of you to just start heading out the door thinking we were done, but we're not done, so hold in there for a minute, but that doxology really gets you, kind of makes you, gives you those chills. But before I jump into our message today, I can't overlook Father's Day. I can't because I've had the pleasure, the honor, the responsibility to preach a few times on Father's Day, teach a few times on Father's Day. And it reminds me of my own father. My own father who, and you're going to think, oh, you're going to start talking about your dad. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I had a father who loved the father through the son. I had a father who taught me in his life and his words, in his deeds and his actions, in his life, that life wasn't about him as my father, but the eternal father that we've been hearing so much about in first hour for 10 weeks. And may I encourage you, I know many of you have not listened to that series, I would encourage you in our day and age of technology to go back, and maybe even some of us who have been through this, to listen to that again. Dave has done a wonderful job of bringing these attributes of the Father that are also in the Son, and we'll see that today, and he's brought those to the surface for us to study. Today he gave us and this isn't part of my notes, but he gave us kind of a uh, summative uh, piece of paper that gives us some challenges, what I really loved, and I encouraged him with this at the end, that he did a great job, but also that I loved the fact that he gave us practical takeaways. So what do I do with this? Pastor just prayed for this for the sermon. This is not in my notes, but it made me think of this on Father's Day. I think of my father, and he gave me practical, this is what we do in our relationship to our Father. This is what we do in our relationship with the Son. This is what it looks like. And as we studied that in the last 10 weeks, he brought this to our lives and said, what do we do with this? And what I'm going to teach and preach, what God has taught me and what he is going to continue to teach me in his word today, this has to be practical for you and I. Or otherwise, why are we here? Is it to check a box? Is it to say, well, this is a holiday, I should be here on a holiday. Is it to be social? Is it just a fellowship? Or is it the Word of God is living and active, it's piercing, it goes to the heart and the core of who I am, and it intends to change my life? And are you going to stand in the way of that, or are you going to open up to it? And I think of my father, and I think of what a great example that he was to me, but some of you may be thinking, I can't relate to that. My father didn't love Jesus. He didn't live an honoring way. He didn't fear the Lord. That's okay. If you're here today and you put your faith in Christ, the heavenly Father plucked you out of hell itself. He said, that one's mine. And he took you and he brought you into his family. He did that for you. He did that because, because he's God. And he's good. And he's loving. And he's an amazing God in the first hour, I'm going to steal this from Dave. He gave us a quote from Martin Luther that I know challenged all of us. He said this about the Heavenly Father. God does not love us because we're valuable, but we're valuable because God loves us. I had to say that again because it, it was good. It was good. And that's exactly what the Heavenly Father has done for you, believer. Whether or not your father here on earth was the man he should be, the Heavenly Father was. The Heavenly Father is. What an incredible God we have. These things just introduce what we're going to talk about today, which is a Messiah that is going to challenge you, and he is going to challenge me in what he says and he does, and he lays down the gauntlet. And the question and the challenge for you and I is, who do you think he is, and who is he to your life? What is he in your life? Before we do that, let's bow in prayer one more time to this Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, and we glorify you. You are mighty and awesome, perfect in all of your ways. We praise you because you're good and you're loving. We praise you because you're powerful and just and right. We praise you because we are imperfect. Our Heavenly Father is perfect, you're perfect, but our, our fathers down here aren't. We as fathers, the, we fathers in the, in the audience here today, we're not perfect, but we praise you because you are we praise you because your, your plan of salvation has always been perfect. We praise you because in the fullness of time, at just the right time, you sent your Son to do the things that you had pre preordained. You had, you had 
written them down ahead of time, that he would fulfill exactly as he should. And these things that he did weren't easy. They weren't clean always from a human perspective, but they were perfect and they were right and full of righteousness just as you are. We thank you for the plan of salvation that permeates through time and space into eternity. We thank you for the assurance of salvation that comes to every believer. And we thank you the challenge of the gospel that we'll hear again today that comes to the sinner, challenges us to respond in repentance and faith. And this all happens because of your grace. And we praise you for that. Be with us as we study your word today. I pray that the words that come out of my mouth are not mine, but they are yours. And they are driven by the Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today as we look in, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 11. I'm going to give you a little outline of what we're going to do today. You'll see my, my title here is, and I, I changed this title three times. But I came to the conclusion that this is the real heart of the matter. This is the real core, the crux of the story, is that we have a Messiah, as we'll see and as we have already seen, that didn't come to bring peace, not in the way we would think, but he came to bring a sword. He's going to divide, and he's going to make you, he's going to challenge you, he's going to, he's going to demand that you make a decision. Now, here's the beauty of this, this decision, he, he does this for you. It is your, your responsibility to respond to this, but that's what we'll see today. This is also a, a, a lesson that we'll see today of varying responses to, a very, to, a, to a, an exact event with some very specific facts and various different responses to this. So here's, here's what we're going to see today. It would help if I turned on this little mechanism and then we can go forward. Here's what we're going to see today. The aftermath of Lazarus' resurrection. This was a few weeks ago. We took a respite from the, the chronology of John and, and uh, took two weeks off. But just to give you an idea of what we were, we were talking about this incredible event. Pastor preached on this an incredible event. This amazing miracle, this, this epic sign of Christ being the Messiah and the power he have, has over death. And what we're going to see today in response to that, in the aftermath of that, is many believed, but some not so much. We're going to see that. We're going to see a true prophecy out of a false teacher, which is an amazing thing that we see out of our God. God, it's not the only time. We're going to see that the die will be cast, and this is by God's divine providence. And then finally, it says to us at the end of this passage, the Passover was at hand. And you might think, well, what does this have to do with my heart? I'll just tell you a little, little secret here. God's not impressed with your festivals, your feasts, your offerings, your sacrifice, or the fact that you're even here today. He is concerned about your heart. He's concerned about your heart. So let's get our hearts ready for this. Here's where we were a few weeks ago. We saw this miraculous resurrection of Lazarus. And here's what some of the takeaways Pastor gave us. Christ was deeply moved. He looked into that with some depth. This was a sincere outrage to the physical, emotional, and spiritual consequences of sin. This is one of those situations where we see Christ weeping. And Pastor dug into that a little bit as to what those Greek words really meant and his disdain for sin, his hatred of sin, the consequences of sin. He knew why he was there, and he knew exactly what he was accomplishing, but he saw the consequences of it. He lived at human life, and he could see this. This was a man he loved, his friend, and there was the consequences of sin. And, and looking through the hourglass of time, Jesus knows you, and he knows, he knows the consequence of sin in your life too, and that deeply moves him. It deeply moves him, and he came to solve that. Then we see the glory of God when you believe. It's revealed to you when you believe, when you put your faith in Christ, we see the glory of God as we heard in hour number one, and we have been hearing that as we dig deeper, and we saw this from Moses this morning, we'll see it again today, we'll, we'll reference this particular event in Exodus, but we see Moses wanting to know more. He wants to see a deeper version. He wants to see, he dig deep into who God really is. We'll spend eternity doing that. And then we hear it culminating, Lazarus come out, and when Christ makes that proclamation, he specifically, as Pastor mentioned, says Lazarus, because otherwise everyone who is dead would have risen. 
and walked around, as Pastor mentioned. So that's where we were a few weeks ago. Today we're going to be in Matthew or John chapter 11, verse 45. Let's read through the whole text, and then we'll start to break that down. So you should be in John 11. I've given you a good 10 minutes to get there. Here we go. John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the, over the Jew, of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will come not, not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So that's our text for today. I know it's a large chunk, but we're going to get through that. So let's break down the first part of this. Go back to verse 45, and let's just look at the very first few verses of this, 45 through 47. Many of the Jews, I'll bring this up on the screen, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and who had seen what he did, believed in him. Many of them had believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So as we look at this, there's a lot in these few verses. There's a lot here. But what we see right off the bat is is a dividing line, a reaction to the truth, a reaction to what's right in front of you, a reaction to the facts. What we see here is two varying responses to the same event, to the same Christ, to the same Messiah, to the same glory of God, to the same preordained, fulfilled prophecy, Jesus Christ among us, and a different reaction to that. It's, it's incredible when we think about this. And as we set this up, I got a great verse or a quote here from Steve Lawson. I'll bring it up on the screen. He kind of sets this up for us. These people in verse 46, having seen the same miracles as those in verse 45, have such an opposite reaction. Many Christians can relate to this. They grew up in the same home with the same parents, going to the same church, and yet they have siblings who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you relate to that, some of you? I bet you can. Some, as parents, have multiple children who grew up under their same influence, grew grew up in the same home. They took them to the same church to hear the very same message, And yet some of the children believe and others do not believe. Can some of you relate to that? I'll bet you can. I see some heads shaking. So we understand that. The same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. And that is exactly what we see here. They could see the actual resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And some would believe and others would not believe. This can be an encouragement in a way to the believer. And this is kind of confusing, but listen to this. Give him a second who have unbelieving parents, unbelieving siblings, or unbelieving children, it may not be that you did anything wrong. Now, you did something wrong, you're a sinner. But you may not have presented the gospel wrong. You may not have given them the wrong information. You may have given them a pure, unadulterated version of the gospel. But it is simply the wickedness and the depravity of the human heart not to believe. If you want to get to the heart of the matter, this is the problem for every single one of us in here. Every one of you. You might say, no, 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 I'm a believer. Oh, you may be a believer today. That's true. But how did you get there? You see, here's where you were. You were the same exact person that Lawson is speaking of here. You had that same deprived and wicked heart. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is true of you. It's true of me. But the incredible, powerful, magnificent power of God 
saved you because of his great mercy and the great love that he loved us. But this is where we all are. So if you're wondering, how is it that people could see the same exact thing? And let's take this to us today. How could people read the same book that's in front of me and in front of you right now, this eternal, inspired, supernatural book that you have, the living word of God, how could some believe and how could some not? Well, that's the wicked, depraved, dark heart that we all have. That's on us. But the incredible beauty of our Savior, of saving us, that's on him. And what a great God that we have. What an incredible thing that we have. But we see a very big contrast here. And, and I think it, it made me think of, and we're going to stay in Hebrews for a second, so turn to Hebrews chapter 2. It made me think of Hebrews chapter 2. And this relates a little bit to what we heard this morning in hour number 1. And I did not know that Dave would be talking about any of these things that we'll see actually in Hebrews chapter 12 here in just a moment. But we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. So, reaction to the truth. Where is this? What is this all about? I just got, to, I got done explaining to you that salvation came from God and God alone, that you didn't do it. However, here's what we also know from truth. If you reject him, that's on you. I'll repeat that. God alone saves. He regenerates and he justifies and he sanctifies. That's all his work and that's grace and that's not you. But if you reject him, that's on you. And that is very clear in Scripture. And here's what the author of Hebrews tells us about this very thing. Now, this is coming off of establishing Christ as, as stronger, more powerful, preeminent over angels, that he is God incarnate. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter 1. But he, here's what we see in Hebrews 2. Therefore, with that in mind, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, believer, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If you've heard the gospel, and this is to the non-believer who maybe thinks that they're in Christ, you've heard the gospel, but you haven't responded to it in faith. You haven't responded in repentance. Those are wrapped together. That's on you. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard it, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, like resurrecting people from the dead, like walking on water, like multiplying food, like turning water into wine. Sounds like some of the things we've heard over the last several weeks. Those things happened. People watched them. There were men who attested to this, wrote this down, died for that message. And that has been brought to you 2,000 years later. Signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will and extended even to the apostles. We've got the proof. We've got the proof. If you go back then to, to the end of or the middle of verse 3, if we, if, do you think we could escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is on you, sinner. This is on me. How do we respond to this? Salvation belongs to the Lord, but rejection belongs to you. God doesn't make you reject him. You make you reject him. Be careful with that. As we go forward, stay in Hebrews. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews 12 as I read you this next passage to save a little time. But this is reminiscent of what we hear in the future. In the time of the tribulation and the Antichrist will come with great power, great deceptive power, you turn to Hebrews 12, but as I transition you over to that, here's what we see Paul warning the future Christian. The coming of the lawless one, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, it's on the screen. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why will people perish? Here's why, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Notice, this is reaction to the truth. The facts, the truth. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. It was on them. They rejected. They were hardened. And much like Pharaoh, God will harden their hearts for them. But that, that was on them in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is a fact of, of past history and future history. And then we have a connection and a connecting of the dots in Hebrews chapter 12. So you should be in Hebrews 12 by now. I'll bring it up on the screen. Let's take a look at verse 25. Now, this is similar to what we heard in hour number one 
although a few chapters earlier. We were in Exodus chapter 33 this morning. This is from Exodus 19, where the incredible power of God was on display at Mount Sinai. I've always wondered, man, what would that look like? I'm really hoping that in eternity we get a chance to look at some of these things, and that's in my human mind, my pathetic, you know, dumb human mind that I have here, because I'm going to be in the presence of the Almighty God. I probably won't want to look at any history. But haven't you ever thought about that? Boy, I'd love to see this. The mighty power of God was just consuming Mount Sinai. It was shaking it, fire consuming it, lightning. God spoke out of thunder. That's our God, by the way. And the people were shaking because of it. And they knew that if they approached it, they would die. Anyway, that's the vision that we have going into Hebrews chapter 12. But here's what we see. Verse 25, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Same God, same God that I just described that we see in Exodus 19. For if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? The heavenly father declared that his son was worthy both at the baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Telling Peter, listen to him. Are you going to listen to the Father who's telling us that the Son is the way, the truth, and the life? Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Jesus is coming back. The Lord's going to return. He's going to establish his kingdom, and it's coming soon. Skip ahead to verse 28. I'll bring that up on the screen too, but you have it in front of you. With that in mind, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's not just for the Israelites, that's for you. That's for me. What are we to do with this? What are we, how do we apply this? How does this, how does your life look in in retrospect as you consider stories like this, accounts, biblical historical accounts? When you consider the God who raised Lazarus from the dead, put yourself in that position. How would you react? Would you be amongst those who believed or amongst those who ran to their tradition and ran to their, their, their comfort level and ran to their friends or their allies and said, you won't believe what I just saw. There must be something going on here. It can't be from God because he's not what I thought he would be. Making up your own religion. Consider that. Our God is a consuming fire. He does not hide himself from us. He doesn't hide himself from us in creation, and he certainly doesn't hide himself from us in his word. And if you're in his word and you're looking at it with the heart that you should, a broken, humble heart, you will tremble. You will tremble, and it will change you. And yet, we don't see that reaction out of all of them. Remember verse 47, back to John 11. But some ran off to the Pharisees, and notice their reaction. When they get to the Pharisees, this council, this Sanhedrin, a mix of 70 men, chief priests and Pharisees, mostly Sadducees because the chief priests would have been of that account. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. So imagine the struggle they would have with him saying, this guy resurrected a guy just now. They didn't believe in the future resurrection because they had it worked out in their mind. These 70 men... Their problem was they couldn't see beyond their own man-made religion. Notice what they say. These two, these, this group of 70, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. They saw the facts. They knew the facts. This wasn't the first rodeo for them, by the way. They'd been around him when he performed miracles. The challenge that Christ laid at their feet, they'd seen it for three years. They've discussed this. They've gone through this. Some of them believed, but many of them and most of them did not. But it isn't just the Pharisees. It isn't. It isn't just the Sadducees. It isn't just the Sanhedrin. It's so easy for us to stay there. It is so easy. I want you to think of of how Peter in his very first sermon, think of who he was talking to in Acts chapter 2. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bring it up on the screen. But before I do, just think about that. Pentecost had just happened. And, And the Holy Spirit had fallen on these men, and they were preaching the gospel. Different languages, but it's the same gospel we preach. I can't just instantly speak in Portuguese or Russian, but I can barely speak English. But I can tell you what the gospel is because it's written here and the Holy Spirit has empowered me to do it, and he has for you too. And he's preaching the gospel, and he doesn't talk about the Pharisees here. He doesn't talk about the Sadducees. He talks about you and me. I'm going to bring it up. Here's what he says. Men of Israel, Israelites, 
these common Jewish people, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works. You saw them with your own eyes and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. And you're saying, well, I wasn't there. That's 2,000 years ago. You know what God's done in, in the lives of Christians around you. You know what God's done in the life of your personal life. You know how he, he changed you from what you once were into what you are now. You see that. You understand the peace that comes through salvation in Christ. You understand the hope that you have. You understand the endurance that God has given you to continue in the faith. You've seen all of these things. You believe that this is inspired and necessary and, and you believe that this comes from the Almighty, you understand all these things. Many signs have been performed, and that's exactly what Peter's telling them, and he's telling you. Respond to that. What do you think of this? God used these miracles to validate who he is. We know that. We know that this is part of what we would say is apologetics. This is exactly what Peter is challenging us with in 1 Peter 3. That you know as, as a believer what Christ has done. You should always be ready to make a defense for the hope that you have within you. You do that with gentleness and respect, but you use the facts. The facts matter. What do you do? How do we deal with this? What are we to do with this question? It's not just the Pharisees. John MacArthur has something to say about this, and it's usually pretty good. Here's what he says. So th those are the only options, really, when it comes to Christ. You believe, and all the evidence supports that you believe, or you reject. You reject with hostility and animosity and anger, or you reject with superficiality and indifference. But there's only one heaven and there's only one hell. Whether you reject Jesus with hatred or reject him with sentimental good feelings, you end up in the same hell. John's got a way, doesn't he? You will die in your sins, Jesus said, and where I go, you will never come because you believe not in me or on me. Either you believing savingly on Christ or you will perish. The question is the same question that Jesus asked Martha, and that's back in verse 26, which we covered several weeks ago. Do you believe? That's the question. That's the question, sinner. That's the question, believer. Do you believe? And if, if you're in Christ here and you do believe, does your life reflect it? Does it look like that? Are you trembling at his word? Is that what it is? Sinner that has not put their faith in Christ? And I say that, we're all sinners. But unredeemed sinner, have you considered that? Is this just sentimentality? Is this uh, hedging my bets? Or are you all in? Because it's an all-in proposition. As we go back to John 11, I hate to pass through this because I could kind of culminate the sermon here, but this is the tendency of so many. As you go back to John 11, and I'd like you to do that so you see it with your eyes, I want you to notice what goes on here in verse 48. John chapter 11, back to our text. John chapter 11. I'll bring it up here. You're going to see a phrase like this. Our place and our nation. You see in that? If you see that there, what about your place and your nation? What about your kingdom and your happiness? What about your pursuits and your desires? Could you put yourself in that? Do you sometimes look at God's word and think, yeah, I think that's true, but... I'll have to give up this. Yeah, but I won't be able to do that. Yeah, but this was my plan for retirement. But this is what I intended to do. This is what we could do too. Look at what they say. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And here's their very large concern. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Here's the reality. Yeah, it's the Romans who are in charge. But if you put your faith in Christ, God's going to take what he wants and he's going to give you what he needs you to have. He's going to take away, and he's going to give. He may use a nation to do it. He may use a government to do it, but God is in control. But this is their biggest fear. They're going to lose what they have. And i got to tell you, there are a lot of things, a lot of issues that cause a man or a woman to rebel, to resist the gospel, a lot of them. That's pure sin that's in the heart of all men. That, that's certainly it. The pleasure of sin, no doubt about it. But I got to tell you, I think it comes down to this pride of life so often where I want to hold on to what I got. I want to keep what I have. I, I, I see what you're saying, but I, I can't submit to this. And I, I see no greater example of this than the example we see in Mark chapter 10. So sir, turn to Mark chapter 10. There's a Matthew account of this as well, but we're going to look at the Mark account very quickly because I think this connects the dots. Uh, 
Mark chapter 10 gives us a great example. Now, this young man that you know very well, and we're going to hustle through this, we're not going to spend a ton of time on it, you know this young man is coming to question Christ to justify himself, this, this rich young ruler. We know what this looks like in, practical, in a practical way, but I want us to take a look at this and expand this beyond just this rich young man and what his hang-up was. Because wealth may not be your hang-up. So you could look at a passage like this and say, eh, I don't care about money. Uh, that could be, but you care about something. You care, potentially, if you're not in Christ, there's no potential here, if you're not in Christ, you care about something more than Jesus Christ. If you are not redeemed, there's something that is your God, and it could be you, and it could be your house, it could be your friends, it could be your family, it could be your career, it could be something. This young man, it was his money. And here's what we see, starting at verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And of course, we could dig into that a little bit. He doesn't understand that he's standing in front of God. Jesus does. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. That's, of course, not true. But that's what he believes. And Jesus, looking at him and loved him. I love that. He said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So as we look at this, our place, our nation, what's the hour for you? What's yours? What's yours that you don't want to let up? What part of your life, what part of your life are you holding and holding on to and maybe putting your hope in that isn't going to save, that is temporary, that is, that is just for a moment. The apostles, Peter, of course, jumps in and says, hey, we've given up everything for you. You'll notice what he says. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult we be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? Answer me. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they, of course, thought, this is ridiculous. I, I thought that being rich was a blessing from God, and that, that meant you were in favor. And how can anybody do this? And I love the conclusion Jesus gave. They're ex- ex- how could this happen? How can anybody enter the kingdom of God? And they were astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them right in their eyes. With man, it's impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. What's yours? What's ours? What are you holding on to? I think of Father's Day, and I'm standing here, and you don't know this, but I can tell you I'm wearing my dad's watch, wearing my dad's ring. I'm even wearing my dad's shirt. My dad has been in glory for six years. He didn't take any of these things with him. Some of you have been out to my house. His, one of his tractors is in my barn. He didn't take that with him either. You know what he took with him? His relationship with Christ. He took the grace of Jesus Christ. He took the blood of Jesus Christ because he put his faith in Christ because Jesus saved him. And that's what his life was about. He had things like you have things, but he didn't take a single one with him. His hour and hour and hour that we could keep, or mine and mine and mine, or yours and yours and yours, those were all secondary to the one thing that he held most important in his life, and that was the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the lesson for Father's Day for all of us, without question. But what's the struggle? Let's move on before I get too emotional. Back to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. So this, what about our stuff? What about this? Caiaphas boldly, arrogantly, egotistically, as we see out of him throughout the gospel account, makes a statement. He thinks he's got it all figured out. He's getting a prophecy that he doesn't even realize. And he says this, you should be in John eleven forty nine. 49. 
and I'll bring it up on the screen for you if you don't have your Bible. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord. This wasn't his intellect, by the way. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And then John gives us more insight here. He could have stopped there. But by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he brings this to us. Look at what it says. Not for the nation only, and I think we see a contrast here, but also to gather into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now some translate this and believe this is talking about Jews who had been scattered. I don't think so. I think we're seeing a contrast of nation and others, and we're going to see that from Christ's own words later on. I think he's talking about us as Gentiles. I, I believe that that's what we see here. When we consider this, this is epic. We have a man who doesn't love the Lord, hates him as a matter of fact, and, the, and God still uses him. <laughs> it's just amazing. We see this throughout history. Nebuchadnezzar was used by God. Cyrus was used by God. Pharaoh was used by God. We have false prophets like Balaam who had to speak the truth but really didn't love God. And God uses these men. God uses evil nations to bring about his good. We see that in the story of Joseph and Egypt. And what was, what was Joseph's conclusion? What, God, what men meant for evil? His own brothers. Well, God meant for good. God uses what he chooses to use for his own glory. He's using Caiaphas. Caiaphas has no idea what's going on here. We see that this is certainly not what he meant. I believe that this is what we see. This is kind of what we see later on. I think it's a definition in John that John gives us later on in chapter 18. This is what it says. First led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Here we get a more conclusion. He just wants to not get in trouble with the Romans. He just doesn't want to lose his place. He doesn't care about salvation. You've got to understand, somebody like Caiaphas, somebody like you and I, if we're self-righteous, we don't think we need a Savior. We don't think sin's our problem. That's somebody else. Their big problem was Rome. That's what they wanted out of their Messiah. He felt that the death of Jesus would take the focus away from them and allow them to keep their favorable position with the Roman authority. I couldn't think of anybody to wrap this up for us any better than John Piper. Now, if you could just possibly envision John up here doing this and kind of getting into that, that will help. But here's what John Piper says about this. In the face of our own sinfulness, take comfort that at the very heart of Christianity is substitution. Caiaphas meant we kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. God meant I kill my son so I don't have to kill you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ suffered the righteousness for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. When Satan and your conscience conspire to indict you, and sometimes it will be so hard you wonder if you're a Christian, remind yourself of substitution. There is nothing at the moment of your death or early in the morning or late at night. Whenever Satan and your conscience beat you up, and the more comforting than to throw back in Satan's face substitution. He put his son in my place. He took it all. He paid it all. He provided it all. I'm redeemed. Yes, sir. John Piper got it right. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the great exchange. We've used this so often. I don't think we can use it enough. I don't think you can hear this passage from this pulpit enough. Whatever man takes this pulpit from us and decides to lead us and God directs him to, I pray that he keeps bringing this back to our face. I pray that we see 2 Corinthians 5.21 over and over. For our sake, you and me, sinner, he made himself to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I pray we hear that over and over, the essence of substitution. He himself, according to Peter, 1 Peter 2, bore our sins in his body on the tree that that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see application for this, that we would live to righteousness, but he did this. That is substitution. And we see back in John, John chapter 11. Notice John eleven fifty two. We got the. I, I like the NASB, so that's why I brought it up. I read to you in the ESV, but look at the NASB here really quick. Not for the nation only, but in order that. Notice the ESV says, but also too. I like that, but in order that he might also gather together 
won the children of God who were scattered abroad. In order that, this is how it had to happen. Jesus had to die on that cross. You might think, why? Well, he wrote it that way. And there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. He wrote it that way, but this is the way he wrote it. And it had to happen this way. And this had to happen in order that you can be brought in. How, how is this related to us? Does Jesus make reference to this? Well, he does. We've seen this already. Look at John chapter 10. Does he, relate, does he make this and connect this to you and I as Gentiles? Well, he does. I have other sheep, he says in John 10, which are not of this fold. The fold he's talking about is the Jews. But there's others that I have. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. If you're in Christ today, he's talking about you. You're that sheep that heard his voice and responded because he saved you. He's speaking of us. John 12, a little later, we'll get to this. Now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, Satan, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, indicating not just Jews, but the believers that are Gentiles as well. And then Peter references this in Acts chapter 2, further along in that same sermon we were at earlier. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice, Peter's main audience here is Jews, but for our sake, man, the inspired word of God, just it gives you an incredible feeling of how much God really does love you. He gives this to us, not many Gentiles hearing Peter in this moment, but here we're going to read it 2,000 years later. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Same words. The Gentiles are mentioned here. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's for you. That's for me. Those who are far off, I have to take you to Ephesians chapter 2. The reason I want to take you here and take the time because you're like, hey, you've established this. Oh, I know. I know I have. But I want to show you this in Ephesians chapter 2, so turn there with me. I want you to see it with your eyes. Here's why. We love Ephesians 2 here. I personally love Ephesians 2 here. I've already quoted Ephesians 2 here this morning. But, you know, we often just stop at verse 10, and, you know, that's good. Because that's application, and that's these good works that Christ has for us that he preordained, that were beforehand, that we should walk in them. But look at verse 11. So often we just stop, and yet the flow goes right through here. There was no break in the original letter to the church in Ephesus. Verse 11, Therefore, considering what Christ has done for you, what you once were, what he did with his great love that which he loved us, and now you're walking in them, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's us, in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcised, Jews would call us uncircumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, same words we heard from Peter, same idea from what Christ was talking about, same thing, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This should change your perspective on every single thing you do. Remember, if you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and you should, Remember what your reaction should be to this. Remember, you were once alienated. You were once not part of this. But by the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, he brought you in. It should change everything you do. It should change what we do. We who are far off. We shouldn't just look at this and say, wow, well, we're blessed. Yes, you are, but now what? What do you do with that blessing? All right, back to John chapter 11. We're going to see their conclusion is not repentance, unfortunately. It is not humility. It is not brokenness. Their reaction is like the reaction of so many around us today. Their reaction is more rebellion. So back to John chapter 11, verses 53 through 54. I'll bring this up on the screen for us. Here's what it says. John chapter 11. says this, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So we see that they had decided now this is how it's going to be. Not listening anymore. I don't want to see any more miracles. I'm not impressed. You're not the Messiah I wanted you to be. Remember how we started this. We have a Messiah that came to bring a sword. We have a Messiah that is laying down the gauntlet. And when the die is cast for some, 
just like we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2, sometimes there's no coming back from it. In a parallel passage in this very same time period, it's now two days before the Passover, same time period. This is from Mark 14. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. They knew this wasn't popular. They knew what the proof looked like. And that's why they wanted to do this by stealth. We know Christ even talking about this and challenging them with this in the garden, saying, I preached openly in, the, in air every day. Why didn't you come to me? He knew. Why didn't you arrest me then? These people were set. Now you might be thinking, well, Jesus departed, went to this place called Ephraim, and I'll bring this up. Is he afraid? Is he getting 12 miles away? And by the way, 12 miles was a lot different than 12 miles today. We've got cars, and we've got, you know, motorcycles, and we even have bicycles. They had feet, so it took a little longer to go that far, and of course, occasionally, they'd have an animal to ride on, but Jesus would not have had that luxury. They get 12 miles away. Is he afraid of them? Is it because he's concerned that, oh, no, I'm going to get hurt? I think you know better. He's in full control of this situation. Timing was everything. I prayed this earlier that in the fullness of time, at just the right time, not only your salvation, but his finished work on the cross had to happen exactly when he wanted it to happen. He was in full control of what was going on. Two passages that give us an idea of this. We've already covered these, actually, last couple weeks. We've looked at some of these. But John 7 tells us this. So they were seeking to arrest him, very similar to what we've already seen, but no one laid a hand on him. Is it, is it because Jesus was afraid and he ran away? No, because his hour had not yet come. Timing was everything. He was in full control and he wasn't going to let him take him now. Yet many people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Notice this redundancy in Scripture. John 8, similar things. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, right in the middle of, the, of Jerusalem, in the temple, in open air. But no one arrested him. Is, is it because he was afraid and he ran? No, because his hour had not yet come. Because he was in full control. If you fast forward, I don't have it on the, on the screen, but as we take ourselves to that, that judgment that Pilate is giving Jesus and their conversation, Pilate, in his arrogance, makes reference to his authority. And Jesus is like, you don't have any authority over me. The authority you have comes from above. I'm in full control over these things. This is... At, at my beck and call, what I do. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says in John 10. I give it up, but I lay it down, and I'm going to take it back up again, and that authority comes from my Father. Jesus was in full control. I love to remind myself of who my Savior is. Was he meek and mild and humble? Was he a, a lamb that was slain? He absolutely was. But he was also and is also the conquering king, the Lion of Judah, He is in the full place of God himself. He is God incarnate. Nothing happens that he doesn't want to happen. That's our God. Then we see this as we go through this. Verses 55 and through 57, the Passover was at hand. Timing is everything. I just mentioned to you that God was in control and at just the right time. Well, guess what? We're approaching just the right time. This is now the third Passover. Some of those passages we looked at were, in particular in John 7 and John 8, that was the Feast of Tabernacles. So we now go several months later and we're in Passover. He had to die at Passover. Now I'm not going to dig into this too much because I think most of you understand this. He had to die at Passover because he was the perfect lamb. He is the fulfillment of the actual celebration in the Feast of Passover. He is the actual physical representation of what that actually would be. You understand, all the animals and lambs that they sacrificed in the Old Testament leading up to Christ were insufficient. They were simply pointing towards Christ. None of them took away sin. We don't read in Scripture that Abraham was counted righteous because he killed animals. We, are, we, are, we, we see in Scripture that he, it, righteousness was reckoned to him because of his faith, because he believed in God and it was counted to him as righteous. These things were all just foreshadowing the Messiah. And so here's what we see. You should be there by now. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? They're thinking he's afraid. 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that he might arrest him. If Christ didn't want to die, if Christ didn't intend to die, he wouldn't have just gone 12 miles away. He would have gone to another nation. He would have gone to another region. He would have left Israel entirely. But what we will see as we go forward in John is he marched right through the front gate. And he did that in a display that every Jewish person would understand. Riding on a colt, riding on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy as a king would. Fulfilling the, the precise prophecy of Daniel to the day when he would come in to those gates of Jerusalem. And by the way, he's going to come back and he's going to come through that eastern gate again. That's going to happen. But I'd like to bring this to us, to the people. Certainly we see the rejection of Christ by the the Jewish leadership as a whole. But I want you to understand that this this goes to you and I. Look at John chapter 7 that we've looked at before. There was much muttering about him. There might be muttering in here about what I've said, what the Lord has said to us. You might be mumbling in your own heart. You might be leaning over to your wife. He's nuts. Would he stop yelling at me? This guy, I'm, this is Father's Day. I need to get going here. You might, I don't know what you're muttering, but we're muttering about each other, about, and maybe you're muttering about Christ. Is this really true, what he's been saying? While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's, a, he's leading the people astray, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Uh, fear of man is a, it's a big fear. There's some of you here who have, maybe you're not held back from putting your faith in Christ because of money. Maybe it's not power position. Maybe it's not all of those yours and ours that I was holding on to or we were talking about holding on to. Maybe it's the fear of man. Well, what will people say if I put my faith in Christ? What will people think of me if I walk with Jesus? What if I tell people publicly that my faith is in Christ and I trust in him and my faith is in him alone? What will they say? That might be what your situation is. Certainly was theirs. We can see the heart of men here. We can see that that was the problem. We got all kinds of people there. It's Passover. There's theoretically, potentially, millions of people there. Hundreds of thousands for sure in that city at that time. 200,000 at least. We don't know the exact number. So many of them having an opinion. We look at our world today of 8 billion people. Think of half of them claim to be Christians or a little less than half. But what do they really think of Christ in their heart of hearts? That is the true question. John MacArthur has something to say about this. Why we were seeking for Jesus, why were they seeking for Jesus? Because he was the focal point of the previous two Passovers. He was the topic of conversation through the whole nation. They were saying to each other as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he come not to the feast at all? They know how the leaders feel. They're very clear about that. They know he's hated by them. The crowd was curious about Jesus. They knew about Jesus. They were fascinated with Jesus. They asked, where is he? They want to see him. They want to see his miracles. But let's recall what happened when he did arrive. What happened? Well, chapter 12 tells us what happened. They shouted at him in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Wow, triumphal entry Monday. By Friday, what were they crying? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Sounds like the heart of man. Jesus isn't surprised about this. This is prophesied. Ezekiel chapter 33 says this. They come to see, see you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. That's what people are like. That's what Israelites are like. That's what we can be like. Isaiah 29 says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's not real. It's not legitimate. Jesus, referencing this passage, he quotes this passage in Matthew 15, same slide. I just added it onto there. Here's what Jesus says to somebody who thinks that way. Then and now, you hypocrites... Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, "Uh, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the the commandments of men. And then as we see going forward, Luke 6, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. He knows the Pharisees' hearts. 
He knows the Jewish people's hearts who rejected him, who were just fans of him, who were impressed with him, but didn't really want him to be Lord of their life. He knew their hearts, and he knows yours today. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We've got to decide what we care about most. Where is your heart? So what about you and me? As we go through time and space to 2,000 years later, 2023, this Father's Day, the Father of glory, the Father of lights, the one who, as Pastor prayed, dwells in unapproachable light, he wants you to consider this. Paul wants you to consider this. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 4. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That's talking about reward, believer, so that's to you. He knows your heart and why you do what you do. This passage is not for the non-believer being condemned. It's for the believer. Don't sit there as a believer, and I shouldn't sit here as a believer, stand here as a believer, hear this message, and it is not for me. No, it's for me. Considering all that we just studied and what we've looked at and, and Christ's commands and what we've seen through Scripture, how does that affect your life today? What's that going to look like? Christ knows your heart. You need to know your heart. So what does Christ tell us as believers? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. And then one last thing to bring this home for all of us, the believer, the non-believer. Hebrews chapter 4. You can turn there if you choose. I'm going to bring it up on the screen. We've been to Hebrews a lot today. And I think it's just a beautiful passage to bring this all around. What do you think about him? The Pharisees have concluded they're going to kill him. He's not what they want. The people weren't sure. Some believed, some didn't. But what about you? Verse 11 of chapter 4, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Look at this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Today, you've heard a lot of Scripture. I've read a lot of Scripture. I've quoted Scripture. You've thought of Scripture yourself. You know what it's doing, believer and non-believer. It's piercing your heart. It's going to the depths of who you are. It's, con- it's making you, it's challenging you as Jesus challenged Martha, as Jesus challenged his apostles, as Jesus challenged Thomas when he doubted, who do you say that I am? What do you think about this? What do you consider when you hear an account like this? When you see the facts, what is this to you, believer and non-believer? Because God knows the intentions of the heart, and you find it from his word. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Today may be the day of salvation for some of you. Today may be the day where for the very first time in your life you've heard the gospel and it's pierced you and and you know you've got to do something. Because the God who resurrected Lazarus is also the God who is going to bring his wrath straight on you and you know it. You considered those quotes that we looked at, and you considered the words of MacArthur and Piper and me and Jesus, and you say, yes, I'm a sinner and I'm in trouble. And I need to repent and believe. And here's the beauty of this. If that's stirring up inside of you, God is drawing you to himself. He's starting to to convict you with his Holy Spirit. Something supernatural is taking place in your life. And by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, from the scriptures alone, by his blood alone, you could be saved. And you can praise him leaving this place and you will be a different creation, a different creature, going on a different path with the hope that the rest of us have. And I pray that that is true for some of you today. But many of you know Christ. I know you do. I know you. But you haven't been living that way. And you haven't been looking that way. And you haven't been talking that way. And you haven't been trembling before his word. And when we look at this, the word of God You're thinking that's for somebody else. Every day when you open up the Word of God, and I open up the Word of God, and this is so convicting for me as I tell you this right now, I should be looking at it, you should be looking at it as the only thing that I really need in life. Not food, not water, not happiness, not fellowship. Those things are all nice, and they come from above too. But what I really need 
is the bread that comes from here. What I really need to sustain me to do the eternal things, to go beyond the physical, the things that will last, is right here in front of me, and we have such a good God that he's given it to us. So I'm going to challenge you. In order for that word of God to pierce you like a two-edged sword, to go to your marrow, to your joint, to who you really are, you got to open it up. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen because you just showed up on Sunday. It doesn't happen because you occasionally listen to some Christian music. It doesn't happen because, you know, you're around Christians a lot. No, that's one-on-one with the chosen one. You and the Lord together in his word as he transforms you into what he wants you to be. And believer, I'm going to challenge you to do that this week. On Father's Day, I had a great father that taught me this, but what he taught me was I've got a father above that has big plans for his believers, and he wants to work it through you for the glory of his son and for his gospel because he's coming back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this incredible story of Lazarus, this account. But what it really means is it's a challenge for us. Who do we think you are? Who do we think we are? And I pray that for the, the, the unredeemed here today, that they don't leave this place without considering. I know you're stirring in their hearts and convicting them. I pray that they repent and believe. And for those of us who know you, I pray that today, like every Sunday, like every day that we open up your word, is a day of rededication. That every day we open it up and daily we pick up our cross, as your son told us, and we, we sacrifice and we give of ourselves and we follow you. I pray that we do that today. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this day that you've given us, and I pray that you give us the grit to continue to work tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.